0: Hi everybody, I'm Cindy Mooring, the Founder and Executive Chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the CMM Walton College of Business, and this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real-world experience as a senior executive, so if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's actually been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Biz. And today we have with us Anne Tenbrunzel, who is the David E. Gallo Professor of Business Ethics in the College of Business Administration at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome, Anne. Hi. Thanks, Cindy. Great to be here. Glad to have you. Let me tell you a little bit about Anne and then we'll dive into our topic for today. Anne's research interests and focus on the psychology of ethical decision making, and she examines why employees, leaders, and even students behave unethically, despite their best intentions to behave to the contrary. Anne is the author, the co author, and co editor of six books on this topic, including Blind Spots, one of my favorites, with Max Bazerman, Behavioral Ethics Shaping an Emerging Field with David DeKremer. Codes of Conduct, Behavioral Research, research into business ethics with David Messick and over 50 other research articles and chapters. Anne's research has been featured in interviews airing on MSNBC and National Public Radio, and adaptations, excerptions, and references to her work have appeared in a variety of publications, including New York Times, uh, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Huffington Post, Washington Post, and many, many others. Anne teaches at the executive, the MBA, and the undergraduate level, and prior to entering academics, Anne worked as an engineer for SC Johnson & Sons and as a sales and marketing consultant for ZS Associates and that is quite a background. I love the fact that you have some business experience too before you moved over into academia. Uh, I find uh, my experience so far and I'm new to the academia side having just come from business, businesses that's really helpful to have that kind of practical application of what you're studying and teaching about. What, do you, what have you found?
1: Uh, absolutely. First of all I think it gives you credibility in the classroom um, but I also I actually was thinking of recently of writing up a a little vignette of an ethical dilemma that I uh, participated in. Oh, I didn't participate in. I was (laughs) was presented with it. I was quite proud of my decision, but I thought, oh, this would be something because it happened to me maybe two years out of college that my undergraduates could relate to and then kind of do the big reveal at the end, saying this "This is what I did. So Anne, I really want to talk with you
0: about um, business ethics, the whole field of it, um, where it's been, where it is now, and kind of where it's headed into the future. And um, there was an a an article written in the Harvard Business Review. It's about 25 years old now, but it is, it is, it is still unfortunately kind of commonly cited uh, when people look up, you know, business ethics. And at the time, what the article found, again 25 years ago, is that business ethics was being taught in a way that was just too philosophical, too general and too theoretical and it wasn't of any real value or use to the students. So what I wanna know from you is whether or not you still think that's the case today and
1: um, if not, what's changed? Yeah, so I was thinking about that and I agree at the time um, although I would almost say more than it being maybe taught in a way that wasn't seen as relevant, it almost wasn't taught. So in some sense, ethics to me, and that's about when I got involved, I think I started studying ethics in 1992. So that makes it 28 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, It was not seen as something that was relevant to business. So for two um, job talks that I gave at great schools that are now have really strong ethics programs, the comments were things like, this is really great work. We just honestly aren't sure what we would do with it in a business school or the famous line that I give with almost every talk that I give what are you going to study when this is no longer a fad? So to me, it wasn't even just that it was potentially being taught wrong. It wasn't even considered relevant within the business domain at all. Mm -hmm. I certainly think that 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 has changed now, right? Every business school that I know is trying to figure out how do we further integrate ethics into the curriculum? Um, How do we hire more ethics professors? Um, And so I, so certainly the attention to it Mm -hmm. has changed. Mm -hmm. I do think that there has been an introduction of kind of this more behavioral ethics approach. I know that that's how I teach my Mm -hmm. class. Not all the classes at Notre Dame, for example, are taught that way. Mm -hmm. At the same time, and I used to be kind of the one that would position behavioral ethics against normative ethics, always saying that I thought it was important, but it doesn't explain, even if people have a lot of principles, why they themselves are deviating from their values. So the famous example I use is, you know, ethics books are more likely to be stolen by ethicists than they are. So ethics books are more likely to be stolen than other types of uh, philosophy books that would be used by grad students and professors. Uh-huh. So they know a lot about ethics. Simply knowing a, a lot about it doesn't mean that I can enact it
0: yeah. at the time
1: yeah. in my life. And so that's where I see the introduction the last 25 years of people teaching business ethics. Uh-huh. That way, I certainly see the receptivity on the corporate side. Um, so, uh, but at the same time, I think we're starting again to see some really relevant practical examples for normative ethics. So, in autonomous vehicles, right? right. At some point, we have to program in
0: yes. how
1: what principles they should make. And yes. so, Germany has come up with a list of principles that were involved, ethicists and corporate um, and governmental entities, and came up with a list that this is what we think all cars that are going autonomous the rules by which one of which if i'm remembering correct is the target of who you're going to hit which has become a big uh yeah. what if question right should not factor in so their age whether they're wearing nice clothes or not yeah. the race right what they're doing so any characteristics about the target shouldn't factor into the decisions and that's where i really see um increasing Relevance in the business world. I agree. Some of our new technologies, but I do bring up autonomous vehicles. Well, yeah. and the inability to solve the ethical dilemma is almost stifling our innovation in that area.
0: I would agree, yeah. And I mean, we know what even happened here in the Uber self-driving car that crashed and killed someone in 2018. And when they went back to try to figure out the root cause with what they called explainability engineers, a, a, a word that I don't think existed you know, a few years ago, <laughs> they, they found that the pedestrian was killed because the car was not programmed to recognize the human form outside of a crosswalk. Oh, interesting. this person was jaywalking. Right, And so it wasn't even programmed to recognize the human form in right. that situation. So it's all right. of those what ifs, you exactly. know, those kind of ethical what ifs, both for just safety and ethics reasons that have to be kind of factored in. So yeah, Absolutely. I would agree. So, you know, you, you uh, uh, mentioned something that was similar to uh, a comment that was made by Linda Trevino, which was, um, you know, that just it, ethics wasn't being taught um, many years ago, or they thought it was a passing fad. Uh, right. more importantly, what do you think was the tipping point that made it not seen as a passing fad?
1: Well, I think it's people like Lena and and some of us at Northwestern and other places that just started to study it and kind of uh, strongly assert that this was a legitimate ethics topic,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, or I'm sorry, business topic. And then as I like to say, you know, in somewhat of a, a sarcastic manner, you know, thank God for WorldCom and Enron and Tyco, because that really, to me, was the tipping point. And people said, wow, ethics aren't just something you're supposed to do to be nice. Ethics can take down really big firms. Right, right. And so that's where, and then of course, uh, you know, there's legislation. So the world suddenly started to pay attention to the significant costs of being unethical. And same thing then with the financial crisis. So um, I hate to say it, but sometimes those exogenous threats do lead to more rapid change than you would have had if we wouldn't have had them.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And perhaps advancements that actually end up benefiting society overall. Exactly. You know, and I think one of the big advancements is not just that we started teaching it, but that we did start introducing the social sciences um, and, the, you know, the behavioral ethics piece of it, which obviously has been a big, big love of yours as well. And so let's talk a little bit about one of your books that you co-authored and that I'm a big fan of called Blind Spots. Um, why we fail to do what's right and what to do about it. I love the title, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> um, so why, why do you think, if you could sum it up, that we fail to do what we know is right?
1: So blind spots Kind of stepping back are just those obstacles so obstacles at the individual obstacles at the social obstacles at the institutional level that uh-huh. really prevent us from behaving in accordance with our value and maybe more importantly prevent us from seeing that we're not behaving in line yeah. with our value. so in some sense hiding it from us right um, so at the individual level you have blind spots such as illusions so i believe i'm more ethical than i really am mm. you have uh cognitive Uh, influences like ethical fading. So if I don't code this as an ethical decision, it doesn't matter how many principles and values I have, they're not going to be kind of called up um, when I make that decision because it's not going to be seen as relevant to that. You have biases um, from kind of game theory, you have moral uh, disengagement mechanisms. So the individual level, you have a lot of forces that allow you to behave in ways that deviate from your values, but again, hide it from you.
0: Mm-hmm. So you got to trick yourself into believing that I'm not really unethical.
1: Exactly. But, and you're not conscious of it. Right. So uh, it's not yeah. even that I know that I'm necessarily, I'm tricking myself. It's, it's more insidious than that. In some yeah.
0: sense. Yeah, happens
1: unconsciously. Interesting. And it's then the, at the social level, you yeah. have anywhere from, you know, overclaiming So when you're thinking of a social level, like you said, the individual levels really, what effect do I have on myself? And at the social level, you then kind of go to the next level and you say, what effects do other people have right. on me? Right. So right. when I'm in social dilemmas, I know that I overclaim. um, when I'm with other people, I compare myself to them. And if that comparison is disadvantageous, I feel that I can behave unethically or at least motivates me to, to kind of right the wrong, um, other people provide us with a justification for behaving mm. unethically. So there's research that shows that if, if I'm going to make, uh, two dollars for behaving unethically or another situation say where I'm gonna make a dollar and you're gonna I can give you a dollar or I have to give you a dollar even though I'm it's a less a smaller temptation right because it's only a dollar in that right. second situation for me aggregate uh, total is the same I behave more eth- unethically in that second situation because I can use you as a rationalization right because I can say oh but but Cindy's benefiting right? So, um, wow! Will other people provide us if they can be somehow a beneficiary. Yeah, they provide us with that rationalization. Obviously, groupthink, which has uh, been covered a lot. So, other people, mm-hmm. when we're together, right, we're going to think we're more moral and invincible mm-hmm. than we really are. Mm-hmm. And then, probably, what I spend a significant time on, now, at least in my classroom, is on implicit biases and kind of understanding the, the barrels that you're in but maybe more importantly, the barrels that you're not in, right? Mm -hmm. And how that might lead us to treatment, unfair treatment, treatment that deviates from our values. Again, because there's a neurological basis to some of this that I don't even realize that I'm doing. I think I'm being fair to everyone, for example.
0: Right, right, right. So if it's implicit, you're not aware of it, it's unconscious, like you mentioned. So what, what can you do
1: about that? Right. So um, at the individual level, one of the things we talk about is just a, I always say to my students uh, and in talks, if the only thing you get out of this is that you're not as ethical as you think that you are, then you've started down the path. Because if, right. if you don't do that, then nothing else I'm going to say after this is really going to matter, right? Right, right. Because um, you're going to say it's for other people. That's not for me. Mm-hmm. So A is recognize uh, you, your company, your division are not as ethical as you think that you are. Um, then you need to begin to address some of those forces. So you need to understand that when i thinking about ethical dilemmas, I say, oh, of course I will behave ethically. And then at the time of the decision, that's uh, potentially not true. So should self is, is strong before your want self, kind of your impulsive self is strong at the time. So you have to be aware that, guess what? I think I'm going to stand up in a meeting if somebody says something inappropriate, uh-huh. but in the decision itself, Right. I may actually not. You have to be aware what forces and what forces are there. Things like I want to get along. I want you to like me, Cindy. I I don't want to rock the boat. Um, so you have to be prepared and then think about how to address that. Um, at the social level, a lot of great recommendations are starting to come out, uh, of the implicit bias work. And one of the nice things is, is they're actually more malleable than perhaps decision biases that Mm. um, studied more in game theory. Uh So, um, they find, for example, that l- let's say living in a diverse neighborhood doesn't necessarily change your implicit attitudes, but having good friends or socializing uh, with people that potentially you're biased against um, is important to kind of personalize them. Right. Uh, right. So also, you know, reading books by people that are not um, maybe in your barrel. Watching right. You. I, I with my executives, I recently had them think about. In the last six months, when you've had a difficult decision to make, who did you uh, call up? And they listed the five, yeah, and then asked them how many are your gender, how many are your race. So that comes that's, out. Of-
0: that's a great exercise, and you know, I think that there've been. A lot of, uh, given our current situation with, for example, you know, systemic racism and thinking about that and thinking about, well, how many, you know, mainstream authors are there that have been, you know, black and how many times do you see, you know, uh, black individuals as kind of the, you know, the main point of reference or how many times do you read black authors? And, you know, so just to your point, getting outside of your barrel and becoming more aware of things that are different than you. Um, and picking that up can, you're right, really help to make um, some of those implicit biases
1: to your point, more malleable. Exactly, exactly. And start to change them. But, and some of that work suggests, you know, this works best for people that are motivated to change. People are aware that they've had biases. Again, awareness is the first step.
0: It is the first um,
1: yeah. And then start to pay attention and then really give yourself time mm-hmm. um, to change. It's not going to be something that occurs overnight. Certainly using things uh, like having pre-established criteria when you're looking at candidates um, is useful rather than having it be kind of this quick decision you make in your mind. So save a pile of resumes. Yes. um, Right. Having a pre-established criteria and they say also having to write a justification for why you're accepting or not, yes, can can prevent those uh, implicit biases maybe from rising up to the degree that they that they can.
0: Yeah, those are that's some really great great educational
1: points to learn on. I think. And then, I mean, you also I think have to look at the institutional level and say how do we fix some of the blind spots that exist there. Yeah, and that includes looking at your reward systems, and more important than just looking at. What you say you reward is getting feedback from people in the organization is what do you think is rewarded? Mm -hmm. Because whether they're accurate or not, what they think is what's rewarded is going to be more influential in their own behavior than what you tell them.
0: One of the things I found when I was uh, uh, before my life now (laughs) on the academic side, when I was in business is... um, Making sure that there's an open environment and that when you are getting to a promotion phase, that there are more than just the immediate managers that are weighing in on all aspects of someone's performance holistically, not just what they achieved, but how they achieved it. So, you know, having your ethics and compliance department that you do run a check with before to make sure that there aren't like allegations that have been filed against them that might be so serious that it would, uh, you know, should have an impact on um, somebody perhaps getting promoted or not can be a really beneficial thing to do.
1: Absolutely. I I was working with a organization that was very global people all over um, and in kind of little pods all over. And I worked with them for about four years. One of the things they did uh, after that is it's so big, they kind of didn't know where to start. Uh They similar to what you're saying, Cindy, is they, had people rate their ethicality, so leaders, but also their subordinates. And they started with where there was the biggest gap. Wow. Not to say that one was right or wrong. Right. But why is there discrepancy in perceptions? Right. That's at least, that was kind of the the lowest hanging fruit. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's just start here and have a conversation. So that's kind of ethical illusions at the leadership level, which might be uh, also a good first step. Yeah, yeah, very
0: interesting. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about an article that you recently wrote in the Annual Review of Psychology that really focused on sexual harassment in academia. And um, you looked at that really through the the lens of behavioral ethics um, and started from the premise, which which I would agree with, that sexual harassment is a form of unethical behavior. I mean, you know, if you do look at just some of the basic principles of, of business ethics, it's respecting everyone's autonomy, which should be one of the, you know, basic ground rules if you want to have a trusting and um, effective business relationship, well, that means that you don't discriminate and harass, you know, other individuals, if you're going to, there aren't any second class citizens in business would be another way to say it, right? right? So tell us a little bit about what you found in that article about how the ethical climate at various levels can actually affect both the occurrence of and the response to sexual harassment.
1: Yeah. So we were asked to write this. Uh, this includes Tina Deekman and Mackenzie Reese uh, uh-huh. about five months before the Me Too movement. Wow. But we were given two years. So it was interesting to read the 300 or so articles that we read going all the way back, as far as we could find about sexual harassment in the midst of all of the rel- uh, revelations that were coming out about sexual harassment. Uh-huh. So what we noticed is certainly there were factors that contribute to the um, uh, committing of sexual harassment, but also the observation right. of sexual harassment. But then as we went through it, we realized there was quite a tight connection in our minds to the blind spots that we just uh, discovered. Mm. And just to discuss a few of them. There certainly can be ethical fading by the harasser. It doesn't excuse their behavior. Um, now, just because you're not seeing it as something wrong doesn't mean you're not responsible or accountable right. for it. That yeah. mess. But we know, at least through some of the research, for example, males don't code sexual harassment in the same way women do And So if we look at the most typical, which is a male in higher power um, sexually harassing a woman of lower power, uh-huh. um, Part of it may be that they're coding the harassment different, and I think you see a lot of the training focused on that, mm-hmm. right? Trying to get people to recognize what are the various, all the way from microaggressions, right, all the way up to right. you know, sexual assault, right. But that wasn't the only piece of the puzzle we thought, and that is that victims and observers, and observers are really important and really are seen as key to stopping uh, sexual harassment for a variety of reasons. Uh-huh. Often don't see the harassment for what it is either, which is yes. akin to motivated blindness. So for mm. victims, it's an interesting, uh, disturbing, but interesting theory out of the domestic violence literature: uh, betrayal, blind uh, betrayal, blindness, which says it's really hard for me to admit that someone that I love, that I care, that I'm dependent on,
0: uh-huh.
1: is actually doing something to me that doesn't fit any of those. Right. That I think of them as so. The same thing can be true of victims. And that is, is that it's very difficult sometimes for me to see it. It's also very difficult for observers to see it if it's not in their best interest to see it. So if it is a, Uh, uh, someone that has resources in the organization, my own boss, it's interesting research in uh, the abusive supervision literature that says when someone else in my work group is being abused, Mm -hmm. I actually step away from it because I don't want to be the next target. Got and I'm, I don't know if we do that consciously, right? And right. we may not be aware it's a protection of the self, right? And some of that kind of fear often leads us to doing things that we don't even recognize that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And then I think at the organizational level, one of the biggest problems, and we saw this again and again, is the legal focus on sexual harassment. It's mm-hmm. seen as a legal issue, not an ethical issue, as as many others have argued that creates a situation where really the university or the organization is aligned their interests are aligned with the harasser and mm. making mm. this go away mm. versus with the victim. And I think part of the problem is we don't we don't see it as an ethical issue. So I don't think about the harm that's being done to them, everyone around them. And I would argue there's a an effect then on ethical behavior. Sure. That's just right. So if I see people being mistreated that then lends itself to other forms of mistreatment that may not be sexual harassment.
0: The other thing that I wanted to ask you about is there, were, you also mentioned that things like the slippery slope could facilitate um, sexual harassment. So what is that, tell us what that's all about.
1: Um, yeah, so there's a lot of research that shows, you know we don't pay attention to those small ones, right? The, the, the jokes, the leering, uh-huh. um, the a sexual severity scale, those would be kind of considered to be the least severe. And just like unethical behavior, right, where you um, don't pay attention to, oh, well, they overcharged by 100 on their um, expense report. I'm sure that was fine. Then that 100 becomes acceptable. And then mm-hmm. all we need to do is take a little bit of a step and not a very discernible one. And then it's 125. Yeah. And then it's 150. And you, there's so many examples of the slippery slope of unethical behavior. And the research seemed to suggest, and we hypothesize that the same thing is true with sexual harassment right. that is it doesn't start out with sexual assault sometimes it does please don't get me wrong on that right right right, right. it starts out a little bit being asked yeah. over being asked yeah. to stay late uh-huh right hand on the knee yeah. um and that it, it, it's hard for us to discern small changes right and right behavior. and before we know it now it's it's so far but then there's always the fear that, well, I look like I was complicit in those smaller steps.
0: Right, right. Which is another reason I think that it should be viewed as uh, as an ethical issue and not just a legal issue. Because some of those actions may find fall on the you know not legally actionable side of the equation, but it's still behavior that if you can nip in the bud early enough, you can hopefully prevent it ever getting to you know the legal, legally actionable side of the equation.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And then the other problem with the legal focus is the NDAs, right? So when you have an NDA, no one in the organization knows. So it looks like a weak response. Uh Um, So it says, I'd never go up through all the trouble of reporting um, and the retaliation potentially, if nothing's going to happen. And the point is an NDA doesn't allow you to tell it, but more disturbing to us was this notion of past the harasser. If there's an NDA, the next organization or university that hires you has no idea. And I think uh, one university and I was trying to remember what it was. Somebody just sent it to me now. I think as part of your employment, you have to list whether you were ever charged with or investigated mm-hmm. for. So they're trying to, cause it's become a somewhat of a known problem at least in academia.
0: Yeah, how interesting. And you know, that's a, that's a that's just a manifestation of a problem. I think that is that exists in some corporations for poor performance as well. Instead of like being, giving the kind of feedback you should be giving and addressing problems when they arise, you know, it might be easier and some might argue unethical to simply not recognize it, but give the person a hint enough that they're really not meeting the, you know, the standard they need to be so that, that they can go find another job. And essentially you're just passing the, you know, poor performance, which can keep into organizations from getting better. This exactly. would be a similar manifestation to that. You know, you just... It's another example, if you will, of kind of willful blindness, you know, but you're purposely not knowing so that it just becomes a problem you don't have to deal with, but that somebody else will have to deal with, which isn't good for any of us.
1: No, right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The more you can see it as an ethical issue, this is not how we treat people. And in fact, a few papers we have, we posit and find support for the notion that a climate for ethics certainly contributes to unethical behavior but so does a climate of justice uh-huh. and a climate of respect uh-huh. independently That's and so if you aren't respecting people right and the process isn't just by which we file complaints right then it's contributes to unethical behavior as well yeah yeah so you have to think about those to me it's interesting to think about those three pieces right yeah ethics yeah. justice and respect obviously overlapping
0: Right. Absolutely. Well, respect is one of those um, hyper norms that, you know, they say that all individuals actually share. And, And despite other disagreements lower down, if you can communicate on that level, you know, even sort of implicitly in the way you act in an organization, then people will see that there is respect for the individual. And it kind of sets this higher ethical plane. Absolutely. You know, in organizational justice, there's a lot written about that as well, that sometimes it's about the process, right? Not necessarily exactly. about the outcome, it's about the process and whether or not it was just and whether or not it was fair.
1: Right. So. And then there's the third form. So it's distributive, right? What outcome did I get? Process. Was uh-huh. it a fair evaluation process? Using that as an example. And then what interpersonally? Right. how to treated during it.
0: Yeah, and all of those you know, go together to really, in my opinion, have a, having an effective practice. So we've talked a lot about where we are today. And boy, have you added a lot to the field with you know, all of the behavioral ethics and the psychology side of it. And I think there are lots of tips in there that individuals and organizations can use to improve. But if you had a crystal ball and were able now to look into the future and say, what do you think that business ethics ought to really focus on to deal with the... Challenges we can't even see in front of us right now, but we surely know it's disruptive in the business world and is going to become more so with technology. What do you think those three things ought to be or the three words that we should define business ethics by in the future to get it right?
1: Well... Originally, I would written um, remedies and interventions because I think we've done, have gone far in identifying, kind of being aware of the right. obstacles, identifying more obstacles over the last uh, 25 years, and we're starting to move into remedies. Uh-huh. But I, as I was thinking further about it, particularly in the time we find ourselves in, the other word that came to mind is vigilance. There's a lot of compliance officers that I've talked to that are worried with everything that's going on. Ethics is taking a back seat. Yeah. There's a lot there's a lot to do right now. So I'm a little afraid the guard has uh, been let down and Mm. further we know when people are in the red, when they're facing a domain of losses that we're more likely to um, utilize risky strategies which can include unethical behavior. Yeah. And so I, I think my very first word would be vigilance. We have to continue to find ways to identify when there are unethic- unethical actions that are occurring, and that again increasingly involves the use of observers, focus groups. I always say talk to your new people because you right. just indoctrinated them with your norms, and they're the first ones because they're not become, they haven't become desensitized to say, "Hey, this isn't what I learned about in training."
0: Yeah,
1: right. Um, and just constantly ask, "How are we doing? Where do you think we're going wrong?" Mm-hmm. What is our biggest blind spot? What language euphemisms do we use here? That's a very useful exercise. Yeah, you right. yep. Will help in the vigilance aspect. I like that. And then I think the research needs to, so vigilance on the, port, on the uh, part of uh, those in the compliance function. Yes. And continuing to identify remedies in um, the research and that can, that can be useful to organizations once they find the unethical behavior.
0: That's great. Okay. So did I miss one? Vigilance? Well, remedies. Remedies.
1: But I and- remedies and interventions. So and interventions. Would be, like would be maybe what we uncover through research and then interventions or something Yes, that takes that yes. to individual.
0: Yes. I like it. Those are all really good. And the reason why I think that makes so much sense is they're all very practical, right? <laughs> So um, if the criticism many years ago was it was too theoretical and philosophical, I think we've come a long way in identifying what are some of the practical problems? What are the root causes? And then, okay, how do we apply these practical solutions for the future? And being vigilant about that is probably one of the main things. And then being willing and having the courage to intervene, right, Um, when the research leads you to what the remedy should be, you actually have to then go put it into action.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Those are great, Anne. Thank you very much. And so I want to end on something fun for uh, everyone. Um, During this time, we know that we've been all kind of cooped up with COVID going on and it's still going on. So hopefully you've had time to maybe do a little more reading or or watching something on television, a movie or, or a TV series. Have you read anything that was both interesting and fun and kind of a release for you, but still had just an incredible ethical dilemma embedded in it?
1: So, so in the last year, I've read uh, Bad Blood, which if you haven't read it, is just amazing. Yeah. And certainly that trial will be um, ongoing. And yes. The, the author of that actually came to speak at Notre Dame as well. Um, so oh, really, I bet that really was fascinating. shows many of the aspects, I think, that we identify in the book. Many, it's almost like every page I wanted to, you know, put a notation, <laughs> as an example of. Yeah. Um, uh, we're... Uh, at Notre Dame in our business school, we have kind of an ethic and tech, ethics and technology book club. So right now I'm reading The Ethical Algorithm, which is actually really, it's written by um, kind of theoretical physicists or computational um, professors. Yeah. And they even state that. And it's really easy to understand. Yeah. But it really talks about the data. So I'm, I'm not that far into it, but so far I've really enjoyed that. And then my husband and I, we've actually haven't watched a TV series together uh, <laughs> since The Sopranos, um, just finished Ozark. Oh, and yes. <laughs> three seasons. I mean, that's not just one ethical dilemma. Uh, every minute is an ethical dilemma. Do you protect family? Do you pay attention to yourself, even within your family? Ends uh-huh. justify the means. I mean, so much. So it's so. really, really great acting. And the person that plays Ruth uh, won the... Uh, what is it? The Grammy or the Oscar, whatever the award is for TV Oh, shows.
0: yeah. Is it Emmys? I think it's the Emmys for TV I mean, shows. Yeah. Is it the Emmys, yeah,
1: yeah. Oh my God, we love that one.
0: And you know, the only the only one negative. There's lots of them. Um, the only problem is with COVID. They've not been able to, you know, take a lot of additional. So all of us who've been, you know, voraciously watching these series are going to have to wait longer for the next series to come out for some of those. But uh, exactly. for anybody who hasn't caught up, my son was recently watching Ozark, and he's off at college and when I called him one time and asked him what he was, what he was doing. He's like, well, I'm in the middle of Ozark, mom. I, I gotta, I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> Can I call you back? Can I call you back? Uh, well, Ann, this has been fabulous. Thank you for oh, your time geez. today and sharing your knowledge and wisdom and insights. It was been um, really a treat. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, well, thank you for the invite and for all you're doing to bring your kind of practical knowledge with theoretical knowledge and connections to help us further um, hopefully the good work we're doing in this field
0: yeah well i enjoy it very much it's a it's a passion and a love i think for all of us in the field so it's something we share all right well thanks very much we'll talk again soon
1: all right thank you cindy
0: okay bye-bye thanks for listening to today's episode of the biz the business integrity school You can find us on YouTube, Google SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us, and you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.